We'll be reading verses 1 through 24 from Matthew 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. And they may have their glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with the sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the, is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Please be seated. I was thinking this week of, as I was reading the text, warning labels that are on different items and things, and I was reminded of the story I know years ago uh, now where uh, the person got upset because there was a cup of coffee that spilled and they didn't realize it was hot. And so now after that they put caution, this coffee is hot. And, and so you, you, know, you go around and, and you see labels that are put on things, warning labels. Some of you may be allergic to particular food items. And so when you see, uh, and, and some of you are very gracious, and, and, and I know those who are allergic to items are appreciative that you label if something has nuts in it or you know, gluten-free. I mean, all these things, we have labels to be able to see and identify what is in 
the product to know whether it's safe or not. When you happen to see a pool, thinking of a hotel, and, and you see that little sign beside the ledge, and it says no diving. It's got the picture of the guy diving in head first. And then right beneath that, it says three foot. Okay, so it gives you a good understanding, a good explanation as to why it's not a good idea to dive in this particular area of the water. We could go on and on about different warnings. There are all kinds of warnings that are out there. We have uh, signs that tell us to stop. Signs that tell us to yield. Right? We have these different warning signs. They have the do not enter sign. That's very helpful because that keeps you from turning onto uh, what would be an exit ramp or going into what would be an entrance ramp and getting very confused and, and going in a wrong way. I know in what I do as a referee, sometimes I have to issue a warning. I have to let somebody know, hey, you've, you've reached the edge here. You, you've been warned. And I like to say it oftentimes with a, I like to give them a smile to make sure it's, just, it's, it's a warning. Because what comes after the warning, there is a truth. There's a sober truth. We're going to talk about this in the text. There's a sober truth attached to the warning. And that is, if you choose not to obey, there's going to be something on the other end of it. In the form of a T. That's just the way it is. And see, all of our life, we come across these warnings. We see these warning signs. In fact, my wife and I, a few years back, it's been several years back, we were in Glacier National Park. And we're walking along, beautiful. Any of you have been in Glacier National Park, you know how beautiful it is. And we're walking up a trail, and all of a sudden I see a sign. It said, bears up ahead. I said, okay. And I turned right back around, and we, that's all it took. A sign that said, bears. I, I don't care to see any bears. So I turned around. It was a, it was a good enough sign for me. Did you know that the, that, the, that the Bible has warning labels as well? It has many. The Bible is filled with warning labels. The Word of God has clear instruction meant to be obeyed. Words that clearly mark out what not to do, and conversely, praise the Lord on this, what to do. Words that caution and words that point out the way to go. The word of God unveils for the believer the way of righteousness, the path of obedience. Lays out the road map of truth. It calls us to pursue something, doesn't it? Maybe it would be perhaps spoken better in this way. That, that the word, this word that we have calls us to pursue the Christ, the treasure, as we spoke of a few weeks ago, the pearl of great price. This same word of God also calls us to flee, doesn't it? Pursue and flee. In fact, we see those words together in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Right? And they're contextually things that we are to do together, collectively, as a body, flee and pursue. Flee, for example, youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, and love. See, the warnings in this word are set out 
not as good ideas, but as a means of trying to help us navigate through this life that's been given to us. And you know, one of the questions that people are asking today, how do I live out this word in my life? You heard anybody ask that question? How do I live this out? I, mean, I see what it says, but how do I live it out? I'm having a hard time putting this thing into action. How can I effectively translate the intellectual, the words on a page, the understanding, I see what it says on the page, into operating by faith, trusting in God and his word for all things. It's the whole putting the feet, right, to the words on the page. I see what it says, now let me walk it, now let me live it, I want to do that. You know, the Bible gives us, and I just share, there's a few, not exhaustive, but it's a good starter. Genesis chapter 2. We'll go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you might recall these words, God speaking to Adam, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Warning! Beware! What's the truth behind the warning? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or what about Deuteronomy, another familiar passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, here it is, verse 12, then beware. Beware. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. You shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest, here's the truth. The anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. What about that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Israel wants a king, don't they? They want a king. They come to Samuel and Samuel, you know what? You're getting old and your sons aren't walking in your way, Samuel. We want a king. Like all the other nations around us, we want a king. Samuel, text says it displeases him, and he goes to the Lord about this. And the Lord says, heed their voice. He says, hey, by the way, Samuel, they're not upset with you. They're rejecting me as their king. Oh, but by the way, Samuel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to warn them. Warn them of what? Warn them of what this king is going to do. Let them know what this king is going to do. So Samuel does that very thing. He forewarns them, the text says, of what the king will do. And at the end of the warning, verse 19, chapter 8, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And if we continue reading through Samuel and the kings, we see the truth. That God was trying to help the people see ahead of time. He put the warning out. In the New Testament, we see also a very urgent warning. One that maybe we don't look at enough, church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Picking it up at verse 5. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God. That's that the warning. There is a righteous judgment of God coming. Okay? That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Listen to this. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. You see, the truth of the matter followed up the warning. The truth essentially is that God is, is going to take vengeance on those who do not know him. He's going to take vengeance upon all those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. I put these forward, and again, there are many others. But as you read Matthew 6, 1 through 18, I ask, do you see the warning label? Do you see the sobering truth attached to the warning label? Look at Matthew 6, verse 1. And praise the Lord, Jesus puts this right up front. Makes it clear right at the outset. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. If you highlight or underline, I would highlight or underline that particular part of the verse right there, to be seen by them. That's, that's, that's key. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So here's the warning. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. <clears throat> and here's the truth attached to the warning. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, I think it's important here that we look closer at the warning. It's always good to make sure that we know from the Word of God what the warning is. What does it call for? What is it alerting us to? Well, the first two words there, take heed. We could put an insert Words like beware or watch out or be careful, take caution, warning. The warning is issued on what not to do. Are you seeing this? What not to do. Jesus is saying take heed. Listen with the intent of following this instruction. Obey what I'm putting before you. 
The warning is associated with charitable deeds, is what it says here in the text. Now, this needs just a bit of explanation. Understanding this, I believe, helps understand the remainder of the text that we're looking at this morning. The word used here in verse 1 for charitable deeds is different than the word used for charitable deeds in verses 2, 3, and 4. I want you to note, observation standpoint, that that word is used in each of the four verses to begin Matthew chapter 6. Okay, so the the word in verse 1 is different than the word used in verses 2, 3, and 4. All right, why? What's what's the difference between the use of the word in verse 1 and verses 2, 3, and 4? These are good questions to ask, okay? So the word in verse 1 is is the word diakosune, which righteousness. I don't know if some of your translations have righteousness. I do believe here in verse 1, one of the better renderings is actually found in the NIV text, believe it or not. Yeah, NIV. Acts of righteousness, I believe the NIV has. That's pretty much on the mark right here. Okay? So when it says, take heed that you do not do your acts of righteousness, your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Okay? Now the word that's used, charitable deeds, in verses 2, 3, and 4, a different word, okay? Um, Compound word. Has in mind charitable deed, almsgiving, maybe some of your translations have, um, a deed of mercy or giving to the poor. Okay, that kind of idea. So when we clarify verse 1, it does help outline and understand the rest of the text through 18. The warning issued is prohibiting acts of righteousness to be done before men, key part being right here, to be seen by them. A natural question comes out of this. What does Jesus define as an act of righteousness? If if, if the believer is to be careful not to do this, what exactly is it? Define what these acts of righteousness are. And Jesus is going to do exactly that in verses 2 through 18. Okay? Three specific definitions, in fact, are submitted for these acts of righteousness. In verses 2, 3, and 4, we see the first one. Charitable deeds. Almsgiving. Okay? Mercy gifts. Gifts to the poor. In verses 5 through 15, prayer. And in verses 16 through 18, fasting. Okay? Now, each of these three acts of righteousness would have been very familiar to the Jew. And as you read the text, you get the idea that these acts of righteousness were common among the Jewish people. It was a normal way of living. I mean, the phrase kind of gives it away when you read the text. When you do a charitable deed, right? Verse 2, verse 5, when you pray, verse 16, when you fast, okay? It's it's assuming, based on the way it's written, assuming that the activity is happening among the people. This is expected. This is common. So the instruction then, the warning pertains to, and this ought not come as a surprise because we've seen it this way up to this point also in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it throughout the the Gospels as Jesus is teaching, pertains to common life stuff. His listeners would have been very familiar with these things. 
Jesus is not advocating some new program for the people to try out. He's not calling them to throw out acts of righteousness detailed in this text. He's warning them about their heart once again. He's sending his warning to the depth of the heart, addressing the motive factor. The motive. Are you carrying out these acts of righteousness As you do these things, as you carry these acts of righteousness out, what is your motive for doing so? See, these acts of righteousness are not the problem. The problem, and the reason for the warning right here in Matthew chapter 6, is that the people were doing religion. They were doing religion. They were practicing their acts of righteousness in function, in form. The boxes seemingly were all being checked. But as we heard back in Matthew 5, Jesus is not satisfied with exterior religion, is he? He's not okay with, you've heard that it was said. No, no. Jesus comes on the scene and says, but I tell you. Jesus breathes life into this law. He brings to life the true intent of the law. Instead of saying, do not murder, Jesus takes it a bit further and says, do not be angry with your brother. Instead of committing the act of adultery, Jesus says, do not even look at a woman to lust for her. For in so doing, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is asking a question of motive. Why are you doing these acts of righteousness? For whom do you do them? And while the instruction of Jesus rang true in the hearts of his listeners, I would hope his instruction pierces the heart of each one here as well. Church, why do you carry out your acts of righteousness? For whom do you do them? Do you find yourself doing your acts of righteousness to be seen by men? And oh, how strong is the pull to be seen, to be liked, to be noticed, to be held in such a light among men. And when that happens, we need to understand that our deeds, any of them, are in that moment stained and muddied. As you consider why you do your acts of righteousness, the motive, you might also consider this question. Whose reward do you seek? Whose reward do you seek? I believe they're connected. And the text bears this out. So, you know, whether we're speaking of charitable deeds, prayer, or fasting, one's motive for carrying out the act is driven by a desire. 
Is that desire to seek the reward of the Father or the reward of men? Remembering the sobering truth. Remember that. Go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Otherwise, in other words, if you should choose to cater to men in your acts of righteousness, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's the truth put forward right up front. These, these verses, I believe, that we're looking at in verse 1 through 18, they connect with what comes next, 19 through 24. You cannot serve two masters. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you carry out your acts of righteousness with a view to fully please God? To walk worthy of the Lord is to have the knowledge of His will. That's what Colossians tells us, chapter 1. And so question, are you asking for the knowledge of His will? Are you interested in what He thinks? You see... Your verbal response to that question and your walk, your living, how you live, they might submit different answers to that question. Many of you here, I believe, if not all of you, are interested in the will of the Father. But perhaps you've yet to, as Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You cannot, church, continue to walk carelessly, to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. You cannot walk this way and expect to receive the reward of the Father. Can't happen. Ephesians tells us that, by the way, in chapter 4. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. He's just talked about walking. You can't walk this way as the Gentiles walk. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God. In true righteousness and holiness. I'm reminded of Galatians 6, 7, and 8 too. Where Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will... Of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, here you are at the beginning of a new year. It's still a new year. It's still January. It's still time. I know January is a time when we like to do new things or think about new things. Think about where we're going. Think about what's happened. And we have these resolutions and we have all this stuff that happens in the month of January. Well, we're about in the middle of January. I just like to ask a question. Are you going to live another year performing your acts of righteousness for men? Being in Christ, being a new man, having put off the old, 
as a new creation, made new through the good deposit of the Holy Spirit in you. The call is to walk worthy of the Lord. The call is to stop straddling the fence of mediocrity. To stop rationalizing things, thinking that you can walk with Christ while at the same time your heart is seeking the applause of men. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning, you became a slave to a new master when Christ saved you. Your members now are intended to be instruments of righteousness to God. Formerly, they were used as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But now the call is to present yourself to God as being, here it is, alive from the dead. Some of us need that reminder. We've crossed over, church. That's good news. Good news not just to have up here in my head. Good news to live out. That's what it's for. That's what it's intended for. The warning goes out to the people. The sobering truth follows. And beginning in verse 2, Jesus gives definition to these acts of righteousness. Briefly, in the time that we have, you know what? There's a lot of stuff here, and we're not going to cover all of it, okay? So if some of you want to talk further about this afterwards, feel free. We can have great discussions. But from a time perspective this morning, we're not going to be able to cover in depth all of it. I mean, hey, right? We could look at the Lord's Prayer in and of itself and take each of those petitions and just have a message. So we're going to skim the surface. I want to make that very clear right up front. We're skimming the surface but we're going to try and make our way through here, okay? So, Matthew 6, 2 through 4. When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. By the way, as we read through this, I want you to mark on here, or if you're taking notes, there are certain phrases that are repeated here. Jot down those repeated phrases because they are very important. Okay? He keeps coming back to these, some of these repeated phrases. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. All right, verse 2. Here's what not to do when you give to the poor. Here's what not to do when you give a gift to someone in need. Okay? Do not sound a trumpet before you making it known what you've done. Okay, the hypocrites are put forward as examples of how not to give your gifts to the poor. <laughs> okay? Do not announce it. Don't trumpet it around, making it known what you've done. Jesus says, they have their reward. That's the reward. Remember the truth at the end of verse 1. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. You see, these folks that are trumpeting around the fact of what they've done and how they've given to this and all that they've done, all they've made it known, they have their reward in full. That's the extent of their reward. I want you to consider this. Verse 3, here's what to do when you give to the poor, to someone in need. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? Why? Verse 4 gives us the answer. 
has in mind in order that your charitable deed may be done in secret. What's the big idea of it being in secret? The Father sees in secret. He sees in secret. See, just when you think, no one's going to know. Ah! And you're, you're, you're like bursting at the scene. I've got to tell somebody. You ever been there? We can be honest with each other this morning. You ever been there? You've done something. You've done some charitable deed, some act of giving. And, and you realize you, no, one, no one knows. I want to tell somebody. Why? This goes right back to what we talked about earlier. Our motive What's our motive? Why are we doing these acts of righteousness? This is such an important text for us. You see, the father sees in secret. You remember that the father sees all things. See, he specializes in the secret place. He see, listen to this. He sees what you've done, but he also sees how it gets done. He sees how you do it. The Father's reward awaits the one motivated to please Him. So here's a question. Do you desire the Father's reward? Is your motive for doing the charitable deed to please the Father? Look at five and six. And when you pray, moving on to the second act of righteousness now, right? And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Okay, they're once again put forward. Exhibit A. But they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. There it is again. They have their reward. But you, when you pray, by the way, the you, and we'll get to this, but it's singular. It's personalized right there. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, part of the pattern there we're seeing in the text. So verse 5, when you pray, the second act of righteousness. Here's what not to do when you pray. Don't be like the hypocrites. In what manner should you not be like the hypocrites? Well, it says in the text that they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why would they do that? The text tells us they liked being seen by men. And before, let's just stop and pause. Let's push pause just for a second. Because I think we have a tendency right here in the text when we read this kind of a passage to go, man, those guys, those guys were just all about themselves. I know it's hard to view ourselves rightly, isn't it? But if we were to take a a peek inside for just a moment, I'd venture to say that there have been many times in your life, my life included, when we too have desired and longed for people to see us. So let's not think for one moment that these Pharisees or, you know, and scribes or 
in a, in a class all, it's just them. They're the only ones that have ever done it. <laughs> no, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. He's putting them forward, though, as an example. And it ties in in a great way. What we'll see in a moment, I believe, to some of the words that Jesus spoke back in Matthew chapter 5. The hypocrites are put forward. And I believe Matthew 6, church, is instructive for understanding 5, verse 20, at least in part. Jesus says, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How could, and that's the thing, people are listening to this, and how could such religious folks not enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Matthew 6 points out the hypocrites. It seems Jesus is pointing toward and using the Pharisees and the scribes as the hypocrites of the day. Here's why they're not entering the kingdom of heaven. They're all about being seen by men. They're not interested in the will of the Father, doing His will, motive, heart. See, entrance into the kingdom of heaven is established by the king of the kingdom. Not by what you think is right. The king is interested in subjects whose minds are renewed by the word so that they might know his perfect will. Romans 12, verse 2. The king is interested in subjects characterized by doing his will, not hearing only. James 1, 22. The king is interested in subjects who desire to be filled with a knowledge of his will. Colossians 1 verse 9. The king is interested in subjects who understand that in doing the will of God, they shall, in contrast to the world which is passing away, abide forever. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. So I want you to notice here once again, verse 5. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. They have their reward, all of it, the entirety of their reward they now possess. No reward from the Father awaits them. That's the sobering truth put forward. Verse 6 is personalized, as I said, singular, you, but you. Personal instruction on what to do when you pray. Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Just as a note here, church. My prayer, a prayer for this church is right here in verse 6. Get a prayer life. Get alone with God. Make time for the Lord. I say that. And doesn't it sound odd? What I just said. Make time for the Lord. Doesn't that sound odd? I mean. If I am in Christ. Isn't. Isn't all my time. Now under his authority. To say to a group of Christians to make time for the Lord? Isn't that silly? 
All of our time ought to be used for the Lord, church. All of it. Isn't all my life now in Christ connected to the vine? Instead of making time for the Lord, how about stewarding all your time for the Lord? It's a sad commentary, I believe. When one who professes to be in Christ has to be exhorted to get alone with God. (laughs) Yes, we need to encourage one another in these things. Yes, yes, yes. But we also need to be reminded of our position in Christ. We need to work out our salvation, church. Fear and trembling. As God works in us, both to do and to will according to his good purpose. You know, I wonder as I read this, I paused here in verse 6. And I was just wondering, you know, if we were to take the time to go around and how many Christians, how many Christians really have any kind of personal prayer life? The kind described in verse 6. Go in your room. Shut your door. Pray to your Father who is in a secret place. That's my prayer for this church, for all of us. That we don't just set this aside as a time in the day. This is This is a part of being in Christ. Our connection to the Father. Verse 7. Tells us what not to do. Another what not to do. (laughs) We see a longer passage here in 5 through 15 on prayer. Do not use vain repetitions when you pray. The heathen or the pagans, the Gentiles, they do this. Those who are far from God, they do this. Why do they use these vain repetitions? The text says they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now Jesus is not against prayers that are repeated. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he pray three different occasions, the same thing? Nor is Jesus against persistent prayers because he also tells the story of the widow and the judge, right? No. What he's speaking of here is something different. These kinds of words, these vain repetitions, babbling, saying words, but really not thinking about a whole lot, just accumulating a bunch of words. He's against praying words for the purpose of gaining favor. See, for the flawed thinking of connecting lots of words to God hearing my prayer. If I have a lot of words, God's going to hear my prayer. No. That's not the way, Jesus says. Verse 8. First, in verse 8, he's clear that his listener understands. Do not be like them. But why? For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And right here, 
We can have a sermon right here. Couldn't we? Oh, well, this raises a lot of questions. Well, if, if the Father knows the things I have need of before I ask him, what's the point? I mean, do I even need to pray if he knows what I'm about to say? Right? I prefer this, church. I prefer to see praise in this text. Where's the praise? Here's the praise. My heavenly Father knows what I need. Amen. He knows what I need. And so, this doesn't cause me one bit to question God, but it reminds me to praise him for who he is. Isn't it comforting? Isn't it encouraging to know that he knows what I need? He knows what you need. I can enter into his presence with boldness now because of what Christ did for me. I have, according to Romans 5.2, I now have access by faith into this grace in which I stand. Praise the Lord. Verse 9. Because the Father knows what you have need of. How does that make a difference in the prayer lives of his people? Well, Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray. So in contrast to verse 7, not using vain repetitions in your prayer, pray this way. This is oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. Again, we're not taking time to dive deeply through this. Just some, some bullet points I'd like to share as we go through some of these items in the prayer. First of all, the prayer is separated into two primary parts. There's a focus upon God and upon who he is. Notice your kingdom, your name, your kingdom, your will be done. Followed by personal petitions. Us, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive our debtor. Do not lead us into temptations. So there's a proper pattern, I believe, of prayer. And it, I believe, causes us, should cause us to ask a question. Do you enter into prayer with your petitions or an acknowledgement of God and His character, who He is? Are you concerned more about your needs, church? Or the God who has all power and all authority and all the strength to take care of your needs? Isn't it true that your petitions make most sense after acknowledging who God is? You see, the petitions look quite small after we focus upon how big God is. After we see the truth from the scripture of who this God we serve is. Your kingdom come. We've seen already in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 3 verse 2. Jesus said in chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see this theme throughout. And now here, praying for the kingdom, your kingdom come. Not simply a future idea, not, not, not in its entirety, but a present reality. Prayer for the reign and rule of the king to take hold right here, right now in the lives of his subjects. 
praying that the world might see Christ's reign and rule in their own lives. Having spoken of the attitudes and the values of this kingdom already in Matthew 5, it seems appropriate that he inserts praying for the kingdom to come. Pray for his kingdom principles to take root in the hearts of men. He says, your will be done. And the literal rendering is, as in heaven, also on earth. As in heaven, also on earth. Praying that God's will be done. This goes back again to your motive before the Lord. Are you interested in finding out what the will of the Lord is? Is that something that you think much about? Let me see the Bible in Ephesians 5, 17 instructs us to understand what the will of the Lord is. Church, it wouldn't call us to do that if we couldn't do that. If there was no means of doing that, the Bible wouldn't say, understand what the will of the Lord is. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly says that he who does the will of my Father in heaven. These are the people who enter the kingdom of heaven. Not simply those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? No. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew 7. He also says, give us this day our daily bread. That word daily there, we could insert needful. Needful. Seeking the Lord for daily provision. See, the implication is to come. If, we, if we're praying, give us this day, this day, our daily bread. The implication is, you know what? This is probably a prayer to be praying every day. Give us this day our needful bread, what we need. God is our provider. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I bring this one to light and just to your attention here to connect what comes in verses 14 and 15. Because you see, our relationship to the Father demands that we take inventory of our relationships with people. Our relationship with the Father demands that we take inventory of our relationships with people. Forgiving men their trespasses implies that someone has wronged you. Someone has done something against you. That 70 times 7 principle in the gospel? Have you disregarded it in your own life? Let's understand what secures our forgiveness before God. It's not outlined right here in Matthew 6, by the way. Perhaps it's not mentioned here because... Real understanding of God's forgiveness came through the cross. Which at the point of writing had not yet come. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So I mention this wanting to make sure that no one leaves here thinking that his forgiveness is based upon what he might do toward another person. Are we clear on this? Okay, so... God's forgiveness is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. He initiated forgiveness toward you. He began his reconciling work, drawing men to himself. And he did this through a cross, through the blood of his only son, Jesus. You are forgiven and free because of what Christ accomplished on your behalf. You see, God's forgiveness is not merited in exchange for forgiving someone who's wronged you. It's expected that you do so as a child of the king. You're a child of his. This is the way you are to operate. The text is not holding up your forgiveness 
as the pivotal point. The cross of Christ is the pivotal point, church. If you have been forgiven, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then forgiving that other person is what you will do. Ephesians 4.32 reminds us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's look finally at the third act of righteousness, 16 through 18. What is fasting? What is fasting? We're, we're reading here about fasting. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their, fa- their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. There it is again, appear to men. Assuredly, I say, they have the reward. But when you, you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know, I like the passage in Ezra chapter 8. Verses 21 and 23 gives us a good picture of helping us understand fasting. You might recall Ezra's leading a group and they're going back, they're traveling back, exiles, right? And he says in in Ezra 8, 21 and 23, he says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. And here's the purpose attached to it, the fast. That we might humble ourselves before our God. To seek from him, here it is, to seek from him, the right way for us and our little children and all our possessions. And he says, so we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. Wonderful passage, instructive passage, helping us see what fasting is. Another writer talks about fasting. He says, has, a, has no value save according to the dispositions by which it is accompanied. It is good only in proportion as it is not the body alone, but the heart that fasts. You see, this is not simply about going without food, is it? That's oftentimes what we think when we think of a fast. Just simply, I'm not eating the lunch today. Well, that's wonderful. You're not eating lunch, okay. But what is your heart in this? Are you humbling yourself before God? Are you seeking God for the right way to go? That's the essence. That's the heart of it. So verse 16, when you fast, what not to do? Similar pattern to the first two. Those hypocrites, they're they're put forward again of how not to do this. And once again, we read, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And in verses 17 and 18, when you fast, tells us what to do. Wash your face. Clean up. Don't let men think that you're fasting. Only let it appear to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, the warning is to beware of doing your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. It speaks to our motive. Now, if we take this text that we're looking at, and we go back to Matthew 5, 16, it says, let your light so shine before men. Well, wait a minute. I thought we weren't supposed to do our acts before men. Well, let's keep reading Matthew 5, 16. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There is a place for our works, right? That, that others ought to be able to see our works. But the purpose in allowing others to see our works is not so that they can pat us on the back and say, Oh man, you are wonderful. 
The purpose of being able to see our good works and to be able to shine our light for Christ is that people would see and in turn be drawn to glorify the Father. There's a big difference between what Matthew 5.16 is talking about and what Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 is talking about. Let's be real clear on that. These good works. We've been given these good works in advance. Right? We're God's workmanship. We ought to be letting it known for the purpose of men being drawn to the Father, not us. For the purpose of giving God glory, motivated to please God, not to please men. So the truth expressed in Matthew 6, 1, is that to operate apart from this instruction... It says here, I have, I have no reward from the Father. My acts of righteousness, any of the acts of righteousness, if I am in Christ, they're to be done for the King of kings. My acts of righteousness are motivated now by Christ in me. And I love the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ compels me. It drives me, motivates me. As a new creation, I am walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit, desiring now to please the Lord in all things. So we... We look at this text and we come away and take a step back and need to ask the question, what, what is your motivation for doing your acts of righteousness? Whose reward are you seeking? Being in Christ, are you trying to please man and God? You see, if you're trying to please God, there's a good chance that there are going to be some people that aren't going to like what you're doing. And that totally blows up the whole thing of trying to please man because I can't please man. If I do, if I do this, then they're not going to like. If this word is true, and I believe it is, then we need to understand that Jesus says some things here about pleasing people. What this is going to be like. Do not be surprised when the world hates you, John 15. Why do they hate them? Well, they hate them because they're following Christ. If you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, guess what? They're probably going to hate you too. And you might lose friendships. That's going to go against the grain, isn't it, of trying to please man? Because if, if our primary is pleasing man, we cannot, we cannot be pleasing the Father. The love of the Father or the love of the world, which is it? And in case you're, you're sitting there thinking, you know, this, this, is, this sounds like, man, this is, this is hard, this is... See, God wants an undivided heart. Hey, there are no rival loves with him. He's a jealous God. He desires all of your life, all of it. And so sometimes we sit and we, we think to ourselves, man, this sounds like a lot. This is almost too much. It's, it's a bar of expectation. This is too high. If you're wrestling with God this morning with what he's put forth, I'd just like to point you to the cross of Christ and leave you with the picture of the cross. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. What did he do? He gave he gave what? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have 
everlasting life. You see, God loved you with his own unique love. He literally laid down his life for you through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why 1 John 3.16 reads this way. By this we know love. How do we know what love is? Christ on the cross. He laid down his life. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So church this morning, I want to encourage you to live, not to be seen by men, but to be seen by the Father. Seek the Father's good pleasure. And we need to take heed. We need to beware. We need to walk in the way of the word, church. The warning has been issued. The sobering truth is attached for those who choose to disobey. You're giving to the poor, your prayers, your fasting. These are examples of what Jesus means when he speaks of acts of righteousness in Matthew 6, verse 1. I want to encourage you this morning to hear what the king has to say. To follow him. And to take him at his word. Let's do that together this year as a church. Let's pray. Well, Father, it is a joy to be able to come to you and pray. Pray to the one who spoke to Adam back in the garden. The one who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, David. Oh, Lord, thank you for the pattern that we have in the Scripture. Who you are, how you operate. The picture that you give us of your great love toward us. The picture that we have of how you take care of situations how you intervene in our state. Father, it's because of who you are that we come before you and are able to ask anything. Father, I do pray that you would take these truths in your word write them upon our hearts as you've given to us your Holy Spirit, Lord, and I pray your Spirit would do a work with these words this morning. I pray that we would be motivated by pleasing you, desire to please you. I pray your Holy Spirit would continue to channel us. That's his role in the Scripture is to point us toward the things of Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray we would Operate in that manner. Walk in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. That we might carry out these very things we're talking about this morning. Father, we see in your word that when we operate in the flesh, we cannot please you. And so, Lord, I pray and, and, and beg of you, Lord, that we would not operate in the flesh. That we would not see men as our primary audience. But, Lord, we would see you as the one desire. The one great treasure, the one 
for whom we do all things. May we steward this life that you've given to us well and give you glory. And may others see our good works and praise you, Father. And at the end of it all, may we just praise you and worship you for allowing us to participate. Thank you, Father, for being in Christ Jesus. May we truly live as a new creation in Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.